Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway. I'm Andrew Walworth. We're discussing energy today, and I'm joined by the editor of Real Clear Energy, Jude Clementi. And together, we're talking with Robert Bryce, a Texas-based author, journalist, film producer, and energy expert. He's the author, most recently, of A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. So, gentlemen, thanks for being here and for helping launch this series, where we're going to explore how we generate power, how we use it, how we pay for it, and who decides what America's energy policy will be. So, Robert, let me ask you the first question, which is kind of a personal one. How did you become interested in energy, and why have you pretty much dedicated your professional life to understanding it and explaining it to the rest of us? Well, sure. Um, I'll, I'll quote a former colleague of mine at the Austin Chronicle who said, that's a long time ago, you don't pick what you write, it picks you. And I feel that that's, there's some truth to that for me, that uh, um, I've always been interested in the energy and power sectors. I've been writing about it for 30 years. I grew up in Tulsa, uh, which was for about 20 minutes was the oil capital of the world. Um, so even growing up, I knew people who were in the energy industry. I, you know, as a kid, I'm, you know, I don't hunt anymore, but I hunted in fields where there were pump jacks. I mean, I saw it myself. So I, I count myself lucky. I don't want to spend too much time on my bio, but I, you know, the, the energy and power sectors are the world's biggest and most important businesses. So I count myself incredibly lucky to be able to write about them, read about them, talk about them. Um, and, uh, that's my purpose in life. Jude. Um, well, for me, I, you know, my dad got into this industry a long time ago. So he, I grew up consulting with him really after college, after grad school, uh, really getting into the energy poverty subjects. Um, and it was, and Robert knows this as well as anybody, it's people don't talk about the energy poverty side of things. So hopefully we'll hit on that. Um, and then really getting into pricing. I've done a lot of pricing in these past uh, seven years, talking with people about energy pricing. Natural gas prices are very, very low. And I'm sure we'll hit on this too, you know, 230 today for natural gas. Uh, this, the unfortunate part is there's probably a lot of people that want gas prices to be higher. So that'll give renewables a better chance to compete in the marketplace. So they see natural gas prices as bad. Um, low gas prices are bad, even though it's the exact opposite. They're actually good to have low energy prices. I got a question, which I've seen this phrase. It's a new one to me. Maybe you guys are from familiar with it, but it's called hard hat environmentalism. And it's not a new concept, but it seems to be at the core of Biden's argument, which is this promise that by shifting away from fossil fuels, we will generate these blue collar jobs. And so this is how John Podesta, uh, who is the White House senior advisor for clean energy, this is how he put it. He, uh, this is according to the Associated Press. He said, we have to start building things again in America. We got too good at stopping things and not good enough at building things. So the context of this was permitting for power plants, transmission lines, pipelines, that sort of thing. But overall, uh, Robert, you know, when you look at the Biden administration and its policy on energy, is it really trying to find this middle ground or is this sort of just political posturing, trying to keep the labor unions and the environmental movement sort of under that democratic tent? Well, I mean, briefly, it's the latter. But I would argue, Andrew, it's not even that. I think that what we're seeing is energy policy that's being made in service of uh, big banks, big business and big law firms. I mean, look at what Jamie Dimon said just a few weeks ago about eminent domain that, oh, we this is he's the CEO, obviously, of J.P. Morgan, America's biggest banks, one of the biggest banks in the world, said, oh, well, we may need to use eminent domain to effectively seize land so we can build more renewable energy stuff, right? And build more, more, more power lines. Well, why would he say that? It's because his bank 
is one of the biggest providers of tax equity finance. So what we're hearing now from the left in general, and I don't, or I would say the, the Democrats, because I don't think they, you know, I think they've abandoned working class and unions a long time ago. There's this rhetoric around we're going to make jobs, but here's the reality. Nearly all the policies that they're, that they're pushing screw the poor and the working class and they screw rural America as well. And so, uh, it, it, but this idea also just we have to build things. That's the other part of this corruption, I think, of the, of the environmentalism in America. You know, they used to be for protecting open space, you know, wild areas. Now they're saying, oh, no, let's carpet the world with wind turbines and solar panels. It's a perversion of the environmental ethic. And it's been wholly adopted by now the Democratic Party. Oh, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll build it out there, you know, and fly over country. And, and, they, want, and they wonder why they don't get any, any votes in rural America. Jude, you see it that way? Yeah. yeah. No, that's Robert. Robert keeps a rejection or renewable power rejection database. So he keeps track, and Robert knows this as well as anybody in, in the world, of how these projects are getting pushback because they de literally devour sw entire swaths of land. So that's not green. Density is, is green. So there was a book, a great book many years ago called Cities Are Green. You, we want to reduce our, our, our footprint, our physical footprint on Earth. That's green. Nuclear power plants, gas power plants, and these renewable plants – actually absolutely devour land and they cause havoc wherever wherever they're put. They also lower property values. But even the term renewable energy, and I know Robert used that, that's even a misnomer itself. It's actually renewable electricity. So wind, which is only about 20% of the way humans consume energy. So wind and solar don't compete in 80% of the ways that humans comp uh, consume energy. So when you talk about wind and solar, everyone thinks that's all we need, just a bunch of wind and solar plants. They're only competing in one sector, which is the power sector, which is only a fifth of the way that we use we use uh, energy. It's like a slice of the pizza. It's not even competing in the rest of the pizza. And we, we know where these policies lead because we've seen it with Germany, the highest electricity prices in the world, literally over 40 cents a kilowatt uh, per uh, kilowatt hour per uh Per, uh, 42 cents per kilowatt hour. California is about 26, which is about 70% higher than the US average. So we know where these higher prices or these energy policies lead. They lead to higher energy prices, which is horrible for communities of color in low cost, low income Americans. Um, they can't afford them. And I think that's a key point, if I can just build on that, Andy, because I, this is really about class. And I'm glad that, that Jude mentioned California, because that's exactly right. Here's a state that has the highest poverty rate in America. When you count it, when you figure, when you include the cost of living, the highest poverty rate in America and the politicians, of course, in California fashion themselves, believe themselves, you know, the leading edge of pro the progressive party in America, Kamala Harris, you know, Gavin Newsom, who I think wants to run for president someday. Um, and yet someday. the policies that <laughs> I think tomorrow, uh, maybe soon. Um, <laughs> But the policies they're promulgating in California are incredibly regressive. You know, high motor fuel taxes, ex extraordinarily expensive electricity. All of these things screw the poor in the middle class. And yet they talk about environmental justice. I mean, in almost every press release that's put out about this has become this pro forma kind of thing. Oh, we're going to talk about environmental justice, black and brown communities, frontline communities. When the reality is the net effect on the bottom line of the, well, whatever these policies are, is electric vehicles, renewable mandates, rooftop solar, they all stick it to the poor and the middle class. Let's talk about these um, uh, 
EVs for a second, because that seems to be a big focus of the Biden administration these days, especially is the idea of converting the U.S. auto fleet into electric vehicles um, by 2030. I guess it's it's one goal. It's like 60 percent or something like that, I believe. I mean, how realistic is that? And to your point of of uh, being sort of a form of class warfare, I guess, um, I'm curious, Robert, what you think. Well, I spend a fair amount of time in rural America. I've been, you know, in the last month or so, I've been in Iowa. I've been in in South Dakota. Um, you, I drive around these in Wisconsin as well in the last two months. I drive around rural America. I don't see any Teslas out there. I mean, come on. I mean, th- these are th- where do you see Teslas? It's in rich neighborhoods in cities. Period. And so, th- what are we seeing? This this bias toward electric vehicles. This almost fetishism around electric vehicles. That I think it's not just about class. That's an important issue. It's not just about cost and affordability. That's an issue. But I also wrote a piece on my Substack, RobertBryce.substack.com about electric vehicles in China. I, the piece I wrote recently was the EPA's China syndrome. You're, you're referring, Andrew, to their mandate to, that by 2032, under this new tailpipe rule, two-thirds of all the cars made in America would have to be all electric. Well, what does that do? It, it delivers the American auto sector supply chain directly to China because China controls 90% of the world's market for neodymium iron boron magnets, which are the critical magnets used in the drivetrains of all these EVs. I mean, so, I mean, from multiple angles, the way that these policies are being promulgated by this administration, they just make no sense. National security, you know, uh, energy poverty, you know, class. I mean, it's almost across the board. I can just look at it all and just say, it's all absurd. I don't see anything sensible coming out of them. And I say that not as a partisan, but it just, I, I don't, I see just a lot of crazy town. I mean, I don't know, I don't mean to get technical. Crazy town, is that the right word, Jude? Well, it really is. And you're, you're totally right about it. I don't understand the fascination with electric cars. I think it's a growing market. But but there, there's total limits to it, just the mining in it. And you just saw the Washington Post reporting the bauxite mining that they use, uh, bauxite for aluminum down that they get in Brazil is totally destroying the Amazon. There's all kinds of lawsuits down there. But even the, the Bloomberg, who I'm a big fan of Bloomberg, I would say they kind of lean left on a lot of this stuff because they have their Bloomberg New Energy Finance. But they talk about how only about 10 or 15 percent of Americans can afford an electric car. They're, they're per unit, what are they, 65 grand per unit, right. an oil car, 25 grand. So where's the racial justice in a, in a, for a product that the average uh, black American can't, you know, vast majority of them can't afford it? So I don't understand that part of it. And the, the mining is a huge, uh, a huge problem. Cobalt uses child labor and it, they just get a free pass on this stuff in the DR Congo. So it's like something that we don't see. So it must be all hunky-dory because it's taking place in, in another distant land. Um, but I, I don't understand the fascination with it. I, I think there's there's better ways to cut emissions. Uh, the average person can't afford them. And I think you're just sort of shifting the, uh, the, the, the emission portfolio from the tailpipe to the power plant. Because you got to remember, over 60% of our power here in the United States is generated from fossil fuels, oil and or coal and natural gas. But to, to demonstrate the, what I call the non-thinking, the non-thinking, that's the only way I can describe it, that is involved in this industry is you have environmental groups that are so pro-electric uh, cars in China. Well, I, I wonder if they realize that about 60 65% of the power 
in China comes from coal. They're, they're not electric cars. They're coal cars. Here, right. they're, they're, they're coal and, and gas cars. And they, they act like, you know, they just totally ignore that. So you, we're just shifting the, the emission portfolio. Definitely a growing product, no doubt about it. But there's gigantic limitations to this. And I think a lot of the policies are going to have to be uh, pulled back because they're just utterly unrealistic. And as far as oil goes, airplanes, uh, petrochemicals, all these other ways that we use oil, uh, passenger vehicles are only another quarter, like a quarter of the way we consume oil. All those other things, we're not going to have semi trucks running on electricity. So oil's not going away. And even if when demand starts to decline, it's it's not going to plummet. It's going to plateau globally. But President Biden has, you know, he said we're going to be off oil in ten years. That that's just that's totally absurd to even think that because of these other ways that we use oil, namely petrochemicals, a jet fuel. I mean, you know, you get a seven forty seven running on electricity. I, I don't think so. Can I just add one quick thing? Because I think Jude made a really important point there. So why is China, why did they push for EVs? I think it's very clear. They wanted to limit their oil imports, right? That So they saw a way, as as, Cole, as, as uh, Jude said, uh, to run some of their automobile fleet on coal instead of oil. Well, the only way you can do that is with electric cars. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a China basher. I'm, you know, I, I, but I am concerned about the supply chains leading to China. But let's be clear, China's going to do what China needs to do for China. And the same with Japan. And if I can just broaden that out a little bit, because I was in Japan a couple of months ago, J- Japan is not pursuing climate policy in any way, shape or form. What are they doing? I was in Tokyo for almost two weeks. They're building a uh, 1.3 gigawatt coal-fired power plant on Tokyo Bay today, right? So this idea, oh, well, it's the home of the Kyoto Protocol. That may be the case, but there is effectively no pursuit in any way that is meaningful with the government of Japan in pursuing climate policy, reducing CO2 emissions. Why? Because they live in a bad neighborhood. And they put it to me this way. Look, we've got Russia, China, and North Korea right on our doorstep. Our first concern is energy security, not climate. And not only that, Japan's very important in that sense, Robert, because they actually have a declining population and they're fully developed. Imagine the, the poor countries. If, if Japan is building it, what do you think the, coal, the, 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 the poor countries have to do if Japan is doing that? And you nailed it on China. We saw this with COVID-19 uh, supplies, that they were hoarding their supplies. They, they didn't let, hey, this is happening. COVID-19 is getting worse they, they, because they wanted to hoard, make sure they had all their supplies. Rare earths and the other things for the energy transition, they're surely going to do that. And you're totally right about them EVs to lower their oil imports. And their, their self-sufficiency in China is very obvious. It's the Great Wall of China is the perfect example of how of their thinking. And it's the same thing with the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, you looking to solar in ways to use less oil for electricity so they can export it. It has nothing to do with, with climate change. It has with the ability. So they, can, they want to be able to export their oil more so than, than they even than they are now because they use too much oil for electricity. Oil is not a good fuel for electricity. We got off oil electricity in the 70s. Getting back to the U.S. for a second, though, you know, consumers do have a vote here. And uh, Jude, I think you might have been on this call with me. We were talking uh, about a month ago with a big car dealer, a guy who really knew, knew the car industry, talking about Texas in particular. And he was saying that uh, they can't sell these Ford uh, electric trucks anymore uh, down there because they can't haul anything with them. Uh, there's not enough uh, stations to recharge, that sort of thing. I mean, the consumer will have a vote here, Robert. Well, let me just give a little quick history because this is something that I, I've written about quite a lot and been writing about now for more than a decade. 
this, the, the, there's this idea, oh, electric cars are new. No, the, uh, Thomas Edison had an electric car, right? So, uh, yeah, the, this is not a new technology. I can point you to an article from the Washington Post in 1915 that says, oh, prices on electric cars are coming down and soon be within reach of the average family. That's 100 years ago. So the history of this industry is a century of failure, tailgating failure. And what what is new now? Well, I would argue not much. And Jude already mentioned this, but who you know who is the average EV buyer? Well, it's the Benz and Beamer crowd. The average household income for an EV buyer is about one hundred and forty or one hundred fifty thousand dollars per year. That's twice the national average. And they're buying them as an as an extra vehicle. And I had Ashley Nunez on my podcast, the Power Hungry Podcast, this week, and he talked about this. He said just because EVs can reduce emissions doesn't mean they necessarily will. And I thought, man, what a good point. Mm -hmm. And he added that, well, a lot of these EVs are being bought as second or even third cars by homeowners, by, by, you know, drivers, uh, because they like them. And then they have another car if they're going to see grandma in, in Tulsa, like, you know, I used to do with my kids. My mom's dead now. Going to Tulsa, I, you know, if I had an electric car, of course I wouldn't take that. I'd, I'd leave that car if I had one. But then I drive my forerunner, right? So, you know, the, the, there's a bias that somehow this, we're just going to uh, suddenly abandon the internal combustion engine. It's just wrong. And only one more fact, the latest data from Standard & Poor's shows yet again, the average age of the U.S. auto fleet continues upward. Why? Because people are looking like I did when I, my engine went bad in my forerunner. I, re, I replaced the engine. I didn't buy a new car, right? I'm not in the market for new. They're too expensive. So, all across the country, people are keeping their cars longer and they're not replacing them with electric vehicles. Let's talk about gas stoves for a second, just because it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come yeah, up. baby. You'll tell you when you pry my I'm cold. Dead, when you pull my crop, you pull my cold, gold dead hands off of my fingers off of my gas stove. <laughs> um, I mean, when, when this was first mentioned, and I think it passed in, in New York first, and people said, ah, you know. Not going to happen, but but it does seem like it's creeping up. And do just update us on where this sort of movement stands right now. One of the things about the issue that I think is revealing, at least, is that everyone can understand it. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a, 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 a laundry dry our dryer runs on gas here in Pittsburgh, so uh, talk about uh, understanding it. But you're right; it's New York, it's California, it's a kind of a coastal thing. And it is a blue state, red, red state thing because Arizona has a, a ban on the ban. So you're not allowed to ban gas stoves and equipment in new buildings in Arizona. Um, or, te or, or Texas. Or Texas. And, and Robert will hit on the lawsuit, I'm sure, in Berkeley that, that, uh, that even Berkeley's pushing back on this, the most liberal uh, city in the country. I would, I'm in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh. I would argue we're a close second to uh, Berkeley's left-sidedness, but I would put Berkeley one. My neighborhood's probably two. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the deal behind it. It's, it's, it's kind of been a, a, a certain states are doing it. It's not going to be in every state. And the reality is this is another, we're changing where things come from because where do they get their electricity from? New York uh, gets about 45% of its power from, from natural gas. So even when you switch to electricity heating or whatever you want, you're still using natural gas. It's just you're using it differently. California, last September during their heat wave, uh, there was wildfires that were blocking the sunlight from hitting the solar panels. So imagine that. You get all this smoke. You don't have sunlight. Uh, so they had to turn to natural gas. Last uh, 
September, natural gas was generating about 60% of the power in California. So you're, you're, you're still using natural gas. You're just using it differently. But there's been, and also electricity is, is a lot, is, what is it, Robert, four to six times more expensive than, than, than natural gas. So we're getting back to this. Your policies are hurting poor people. And they, they say that they say they try to purport the opposite. But the truth is that their policies are higher costs. They're provably higher costs. This isn't a debate. Ask, look at Germany, look at California. And California has been a way, let me just mention this real quick, has been able to get away with it for high cost energy for many reasons. I lived in San Diego for, very, for eight years, so I know all about it. The mild weather in California means people use less electricity. So even though they have higher per unit uh, electricity prices, their bills are lower or, or normal. Their bills are pretty lower or pretty average because they use less electricity because of the, the weather. No state uses less electricity per person uh, than California. It's, a lot of it's because they don't use a lot of air conditioning because you don't need it on the coast because the weather is mild. Um, and then the electricity bills, too, like California, a lot of people, the heavy industry left the, the, the state. Their sector economy, like uh, health services is big there. So a lot of the energy intensive users left. They went to where Robert is. Look at Tesla. They went to Texas. So th th there's not a lot of complaints about the higher costs. But this pushback on even chefs are complaining about, hey, we have to use electric. They can't cook the same stuff. You have the restaurant unions against this. Um, the restaurants are against it because uh, they, they, they can't have the same menu. Uh, and you have a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, you know, minority rights groups, people that are pushing back on this uh, because it's just not fair. It's the same thing as rooftop solar that they don't own. A lot of minorities don't own their their house. So how can they put a rooftop solar on it? That's that's been a lot, another fight out there. Uh, but their policies, bottom line, are bad for low income Americans, even though they tell you the opposite. Look, look at the cost rise that happens when you institute these policies. So it's not a debatable subject. Uh, I'll hand it off to Robert because he, he writes a lot about this. Yeah, well, there's a lot to say, and I know we don't have all day, but we, you know, we could talk about this for hours. Um, again, I think this is a very, it's a pernicious, regressive policy being implemented by, and I don't like to use this word, but I'm going to use it by it, the elites. And where, from where I think it's important to understand a couple of things. One is that to Jude's point, that DOE's own numbers show that the cost of electricity on a per BTU basis is roughly 4x with the, the cost of natural gas. Far more efficient to burn natural gas directly in the home than it is to use electricity in, that is produced from gas indirectly, as, as Jude pointed out. Second, who's behind these gas bans? Well, it's a bunch of dark money groups. And this is personal for me because, you know, for years that, you know, I, I was attacked. Oh, this guy, you know, you know, this idea of oil money, the rest of it. The reality is that the NGOs, I don't call them environmental groups, they're climate groups, they're alt energy NGOs, they are they have far more money. I mean, like a by a factor of four, and I wrote about this on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, that pointing out that the spending of these NGOs is four and a half times the spending of the traditional energy NGOs like American Petroleum Institute, American Gas Association, and, and, and think tanks that are aligned with traditional energy or nuclear energy Institute, less than a billion dollars a year is their annual revenue. Well, meanwhile, EDF rewiring America, which is a dark money group, uh, the climate imperative, another dark money group, they are spending four and a half billion dollars a year. So not only is this elitist, 
the big push for the natural gas bans is coming from NGOs that are funded with dark money. And that's being funded. Who are the main uh, who are the main funders? It appears to be Michael Bloomberg, uh, Laureen Powell, Jobs, Steve Jobs, widow, John Doerr, uh, Tom Steyer. I mean, it's it, it's not just that it's regressive. It's not just that it's dark money. It's that some of the richest people in the world are behind uh, Jeff Bezos as well are behind these bans. I just find this incredible. And, and Stacey Abrams is involved too, and you hit on you taught you wrote oh, about yeah. that, Robert. Oh yeah. And they, they they again, I can't stress this enough. They they push these policies as it's good for communities of color. It's the right. exact opposite. It's bad for right. them because they're higher cost, and we know the higher costs because we've seen them implemented in the real world, not some academic at UCSD or Stanford. In real life, <laughs> they're higher costs. We know that. Well, Robert, you've sort of brought us back to politics. So let, let's talk about politics for a second here. Sure. Do you think that with it, especially with the House Republicans, there, there will be sort of a more middle path taken by the Biden administration out of necessity? In other words, to get anything done, they're going to have to work with the, with the House side. And I'm wondering whether, especially when it comes to something like permitting, which is very much in the headlines these days, whether you see the possibility of movement there uh, in the direction that you and Jude might applaud, or especially with the election coming up, that's not, nothing's going to happen over the next two years. I, I think it's the latter, Andy. Um, I think, you know, Boy, this I, is an I, optimistic I podcast. <laughs> well, I don't think I look, I don't I, optimism. I'm optimistic. I'm as up, you know, uh, what is, what did Molly Ivan say? I'm optimistic to the point of idiocy. I think we're, we are stumbling, we are stumbling in the right direction. We in the United States and we have, incredible opportunities. The U.S. compared to the rest of the world, despite all our myriad flaws, inflation, you know, bad government, we're still in better shape than nearly every other country in the world. Let me be clear. So I'm incredibly optimistic, but I am very realistic about where we are when it comes to the politics here. And so to answer your point on the question on permitting, I don't see any, why would the Republicans do anything to help Biden at this point? You know, they want to get rid of him. Where, where is the advantage for them? Yeah, they might want to get pipeline permitting or, you know, uh, expedited, but the Democrats are never going to agree to that. And then the Democrats, are, you know, they want high voltage transmission permitting, you know, made easier. But the Republicans, particularly the Western state Republicans in the Senate, are going to say, you're out of your mind. We're never going to do that. So I don't see any. And I was talking with some lobbyists. I was in Sioux Falls just a couple of weeks ago. Um, lobbyists who work for Missouri River Energy Services. They're based in Washington. I said, what are the prospects for any passage of permitting reform? They both, both of them said, not going to happen. So that's what they said. But I, their rationale is what the same as I just repeated. That was what I read to them. And they said, yeah, that's about right. That, that's the problem. And we when we talk about where the good wind and solar places are for more wind and solar power is in the Midwest, especially for wind, uh, it, which means you have to build the transmission lines. Those are extremely hard. It's just as hard to build a transmission line as it is a pipeline. And the big, the bigger problem, and nobody's talking about this for wind and solar, but I talk about it all the time with uh, in my work, is the idea that for there, there's a finite amount of places where you can have a good wind farm and a good solar farm because they're, it's based on geography. So they use California as an example for solar. Well, California is very sunny; other places aren't as sunny. They use West Texas in the Midwest. Well, you can build a wind farm like West Texas. Well, West Texas, and Robert knows this as well as anybody, is probably the windiest part of the country, so much so that Texas Tech in Lubbock has the wind power uh, research center, whatever, industry center, whatever it's called, is in Lubbock in West Texas. So with each new build out of wind, of each uh, a wind farm, a new, a new build out of a solar farm, 
they're going to be naturally, they're going to be in less windy, less uh, sunny spots. So that's going to, that's called high grading. That that's going to be a gigantic problem as this build out goes on. It's going to hit a lot of walls, like the, the mining electric cars, as we're talking about. Wind and solar have the same thing, and there's a lot of these projects can't get onto the grid because they don't have intermission, they don't have the uh, transmission, and they have to pay these interconnection fees that they simply can't afford. Uh, a lot of these companies, so there, there's a ton in the queue that are never going to come to fruition, even a state like California. It's only like 13% of projects actually make it onto the grid. The other 87% are just waiting, and who knows if they're ever going to come on. So it's uh, the transmission problem is gigantic for more wind and solar. I, if I can, I'll build on that just real quickly. And, and it, Jude mentioned it earlier. I've been maintaining the renewable rejection database, which is on my website, robertbryce.com. And, I, and I'm building on it all the time because there are more and more communities across the country who are saying, we don't want these projects. And so now the current number is close to 400 rejections or restrictions of wind energy since 2015, more than 100 and I think it's 110 uh, rejections or restrictions on solar. And these numbers are growing. And Jude also mentioned high voltage transmission. Uh, I wrote a piece recently on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com about the the you know these claims that oh we're just going to build tens of thousands of miles of high voltage transmission or we're going to increase it by 57% and my response is the hell you are you have no idea what the physical and these are the modelers you know to Jude's point the modelers from Stanford the modelers from Princeton the modelers from Cal Berkeley and DOE and then the New York Times writes an editorial saying oh well all we need to do is build all this you know this transmission they have no idea about the land use conflicts, no idea about the shortages of transformers or the shortages and lack of skilled labor and more particularly electric linemen. So there's a clash to, you know, I think we'd get back to the real world, Andy, where you started. There is a clash, a growing clash between this theoretical world and the physical world and the, how that is going to be manifested now in politics and the political world, I think, is the key point. I think the Republicans have energy realism on their side, while the Democrats are pushing this kind of uh, uh, energy fantasy, a lot of it. And um, it just is it's going to collide with reality, how soon it does and how quickly it's, it's going to affect consumers in a real negative way. I think we're starting to see that, but it's going to take time. Well, let me ask you the wrap-up question to both of you. And uh, Jude, I'll go to you first on this one, which is when you look ahead, what's that one issue that you'll be watching over the course of the next couple months having to do with energy that you think is the most important? Well, for me, just I would look at natural gas pricing. That, that's that's important to me. I, I have clients that, that look at that. But uh, for, I'll be very curious to see where, you know, what what happens as we move forward as far as maybe beyond just this summer. But I, I do think there is a touch of reality that's setting in with the Biden administration. They, they, and I wrote about this in Real Clear a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have seen some projects get approved uh, that never would have gotten approved before Putin inv invaded Ukraine. And I think that woke us up. And so I do have some optimism, like Robert's talking about. I think you, you need some optimism. But the idea that we're just going to go down this European path of only renewables, only wind and solar – it blew up in Europe's face. It was totally unrealistic. And I kind of saw us slumbering on this energy policy. But I think we've really woken up to this, where he's now looking at approving LNG export facilities, a gigantic one in Alaska they just approved, uh, a 3.5 BCF per day uh, export project starting in 2030, the Biden administration approved. The global market's only about 50% or 50 BCF a day. So that shows you how big that particular project is. 
Um, some of the pipeline, Mountain Valley pipelines coming out of my area, uh, Appalachia going down to Virginia. And the uh, Biden administration even approved an oil project, the Willow, the gigantic Willow project out in Alaska. That never, it's like, what is it, 250,000 barrels per day or something like, like a huge project. That never would have happened. Uh, if you go back to January, when they keep, they canceled Keystone Pipeline, which is, was a disaster because that's heavy on the first oil. day on, on the, yeah, first, the day. first day right. that that's heavy oil. Our refineries are, are configured to run on heavy oil, not necessarily the shale oil that we've been producing so much. That's why when we export oil, it's OK, because our refineries need heavy oil that has come in from Canada, Mexico and Venezuela. We need heavy oil from Canada. Our, our um, imports from Canada have skyrocketed. The imports from OPEC have gone down. So that's been a tremendous benefit is having, you know, this gigantic supplier in Canada right next to us. But I'll be curious to see if you see a little more realism setting in um, outside of what summer's going to do for natural gas prices, which is something that, that I look at very closely. But the reality is we've we've woken up a little bit. We're seeing signs that the, the administration is waking up. And remember, this is the most climate conscious uh, administration in history. And they're approving fossil fuel. And they're getting pushback. And I, I won't I won't come after them on their policies. I'll come after Trump. I'll come after whoever. Uh, th- this is that's a good sign is they're waking up to this reality, especially LNG. Natural gas is absolutely the backbone to our system. It's going to remain the backbone of the system, to the power system. You have Germany doubling, potentially even tripling their LNG import capacity. Um, so I'd like to see some more projects approved. But there is some signs there that even the most climate conscious uh, administration in history is waking up. Oil and gas are not going away in 10 years. I know the president has said that. I think that was hyperbole. I don't think he actually meant that. But it's not going to go away in our lifetimes for some of the reasons I explained. But we are seeing some signs for hope that they're realizing just how vital oil and gas is. And I'll leave you with this stat. I'll, I'll hand it over to Robert. And I'm a numbers guy like Robert is. In the United States, oil and gas supply about 65% of our energy in the United States, 65% oil and gas. California, who's done all they can to get off uh, oil and gas to go green, and as I mentioned, they have an advantage of going green because they have uh, mild weather. Oil and gas in California supply 70% of the energy, which is actually above the U.S. the U.S. average. And I will argue no state ever – will try to go green and get off fossil fuels like California has for the past 20 years since they adopted a renewable portfolio standard in, in 2005. And they're still, six, 70% of the energy still comes from oil and gas after 20 years of trying to do all they can to get off of it. That tells you all you need to know about the importance of how important oil and gas are going to remain in our energy complex here in the United States and obviously globally. Wow, that's a great number, Jude. I didn't know that about California, and I've I follow California closely because of the things we talked about. About you know, one, it's importance in the state in the in the U.S. Obviously, Kamala Harris being from California, the biggest state, biggest economy. So, a couple of quick things. One is I agree with Jude on a lot of things he said there, and um, I think California really is an instructive uh, thing for the U.S. to watch in general. But what am I, Andrew? You asked, what am I watch? What am I watching? Um, not just for the next months, but for the next few years, it's it's what's going to happen in nuclear. This is the most important sector now in terms of if we're serious about decarbonization. And I've said this for now more than a decade. I'm in favor of end to end natural gas to nuclear. If we're serious about decarbonizing, that's the way forward. 
as Jude said, the natural gas is going to stay there. And last year in the U.S., nat, nat gas consumption went up 5%. That is a huge increase. Just in one year, went up 5%. Just the increase in natural gas use last year was greater than the combined increase in, in wind and solar. So it tells you what's happening in that, in that sector. Okay, so what about nuclear? I'm optimistic. I think you know we we are making progress there, but there are many hurdles that must be overcome, including the regulatory problems at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This is an agency that is not the friend of the nuclear sector. They've been slow walking permits. New Scale got their reactor design approved last year. It took them six years and five hundred million dollars. I mean, this is untenable. Um, so you have the problems with the NRC. You have problems with supply chain. Where Who's going to build these things? That's not the biggest issue. The other looming issue, and it's a, one uh, interview I did this week that will publish next week on the or, or, next couple of weeks on my podcast, the Power Hungry Podcast with Matt Wald, is about the fuel supply. Because remember, in the wake, to Jude's point, and I'll end with this, so in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has scrambled geopolitics, scrambled energy geopolitics, Everyone in, or not everyone, but many countries in the world now are saying we've got to be embracing nuclear, particularly in Eastern Europe, but also the Brits, the French, the, uh, and, and, and Romania, Poland. They're looking at nuclear. So, so is the U.S. and Canada's revising their, their can do reactors. So all around the world, more countries are saying we need more nuclear power, but we don't have the fuel supplies or the processing to make it happen. From where will that come? That's the other big pinch point that I think is going to be critical. Um, and, and goes back to the mining issues that, that Jude touched on earlier. You know, if any, any of these ideas about alt energy decarbonization depend on digging stuff out of the ground. And one of those key things, in addition to copper, molybdenum, cobalt, you know, all these other things, uh, lithium, obviously, we're going to need a lot more uranium. And so who's, where will it be mined? Who's going to process it? Where, who's going to fabricate it into the, into Halo for these new, uh, SMRs that are coming into the market? These are, that's the, the area that I'm watching, Andy. Well, all good stuff. We're going to be keeping our eye on all of that. And we're going to leave it there for today. I want to thank, uh, Robert Bryce and Jude Clementi. We'll be talking more about energy in the weeks to come. And in the meantime, you can go to realclearenergy.com, check out the energy of the future page where you can keep up with all sides of the energy debate. And as ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Energy and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Energy, I'm Andrew Walworth.